0: Welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and it is Sunday, the 25th of April here in Seoul and the middle of the night in Great Britain, where I'm joined by today's guest, Lindsay Miller, author of a new book of photos and personal stories about her two years in North Korea titled North Korea Like Nowhere Else. And before I get started, a reminder to our listeners to please leave a review and also consider becoming a subscriber to NK News. If you purchase the annual option, uh, it's about a dollar a day. So that's very affordable and it helps to fund all the excellent journalism put together by my colleagues. All right, so to uh, properly interview my guest today, my guest today, Lindsay Miller, is a musical director and composer and now published author. She wrote and published images during her two years living in North Korea, and that's now published in book form called North Korea, like nowhere else, published earlier this year by September Publishing. You can find it online, and you can find Lindsay on Twitter at Lindsay Miller. That's Lindsay with an E, -E L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, Miller 87. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So when... Did you at uh, first know that you were going to North Korea and why?
1: So going to North Korea came about as a result of my husband's job. Um, mm-hmm. it certainly was never on my radar growing up that it would ever be a place that I'd find myself.
2: Yeah. And
1: it was in 2017 that, um, the opportunity came up for us to go. And that was as part of a diplomatic posting. Now I myself, am not a diplomat, but I went as an accompanying spouse and um and i ended up being there until 2017 it turned uh 2019 sorry and it ended up turning out to be two pretty tumultuous years um of all the times to go so it was um really really interesting
0: yes it certainly was a uh, very tumultuous time uh, we have had previously on the nk news podcast um Ambrine mustafa a, a diplomatic spouse from the pakistani embassy uh, did you meet her when you were up there
1: I did, yes, I know Ambreen quite well. Um, she was there at the same time as me and mm-hmm. she left slightly before I did. And so yeah, I've come across Ambrine quite a number of times.
0: And I understand that there's a sort of a, a club there, a social club for uh, people who are there as diplomats and diplomatic spouses to, uh, to mingle and get to know each other a bit?
1: there are yes there are a couple of things going on um in terms of the wider international community there's a couple of um locations on the international moon Sudong compounds where people can go to um, eat and drink together but then there's also kind of social more social settings um such as a women's organization for a lot of the accompanying partners who are there are mostly women mm-hmm. and um, many of whom don't really have the opportunity to go out very much and and to mix really so um that was that was another thing that was set up and that was actually how I how I ended up meeting Ambreen.
0: Aha now uh, let's get into your book there's uh, there's so much I want to ask you about I've, I've gone through it um, there's some amazing stories and some photographs as well of course why did you decide to uh, to put a book out?
1: So I never went to North Korea with the intention of writing a book of any kind. I just went there with a very open mind and wanting to embrace that unique experience as much as I possibly could. And I'm a very creative person. As you've mentioned, I work in theatre and and Mm -hmm. I work as a musician. And so for me, the way I process any experience is to create something. And while I was there, the complexity of what I was seeing every day and what I was experiencing was just so overwhelming. Trying to really understand what it was I was, I found myself in the middle of. And a way I really enjoyed being able to process that experience was through taking photographs. And it was always just a hobby, really. Mm. Um, but I found that the more time went on, the more and more photographs I enjoyed taking because... The restrictions on foreigners there as we know and as i talk about in the book can be quite suffocating Mm. particularly when it comes to socializing and i think when you go to any new place in the world you want to connect with people you want to get to know the place you want to meet local people experience the food and the culture Mm -hmm. and in north korea it's not as simple as that because there's so many levels to what you can and can't talk to people about and where you can and can't go etc and so for me photography allowed me to connect with people a new way a different way to help process that experience and i think anybody who's been in north korea for a particularly prolonged period of time will say that they really struggle to summarize neatly the place because i Mm. think the longer you're there the more you realize you don't know about the place and the more you realize you're failing to understand the place yeah and i think you find you just can barely string a sentence together and it's taken me a really long time even to create this piece. Mm. and it's it's me really been over two years now and i i don't think i've I, I don't think i'll ever absolutely nail exactly how i feel about it and the effect it had on me but mm. i think i'm now 200 pages closer
0: yeah
1: um to getting to that answer
0: Let's talk about some of the, the photographs there that you, uh, you took. Uh, they're, uh, they're wonderful uh, photographs. People are very often at the center of them. Sometimes they're even mm-hmm. looking uh, right at the camera, right at the viewer, as it were. Uh, were you ever pulled up short by a North Korean authority figure uh, when you were taking photographs and told that you shouldn't be photographing that thing?
1: You know, I expected that to happen. And I think a lot of people who live in the international community do live with the worry that that could be a possibility. I have to say in my experience i actually never had that Mm -hmm. but then i was always very i was was always tried to be really sensitive to who i'm photographing and why and i think a lot of um visitors particularly that i saw around particularly pyongyang would take photos of everything and Mm. just as anywhere in the world it's not always appropriate to take photographs of people if they don't want to be photographed um, or if you're interrupting a moment, you know, a, a really nice moment of connection and with somebody spontaneously, and so I consistently was trying to sort of ride that wave and go. If if it's appropriate to take a photo, I would. If it if it wasn't, I wouldn't, and I made mm-hmm. that choice. But you know, I as I say, I never really encountered anybody telling me not to take photographs of things, and in fact, mm. I had quite a, a few lovely experiences with north korean people who wanted their photograph taken and who yeah. asked me to get a photograph with them and that was really surprising and the concept of a selfie is just as popular there as yeah. elsewhere are
0: there one or two uh favorite photos that you can tell us about either perhaps about how you took them or where or the contents of the pictures themselves
1: sure i mean as you mentioned my passion really was to take photographs of people and that is a big message that I really wanted to carry through in this piece was the people rather than the politics of the place, although the politics is obviously hard to avoid. Um, But in terms of the photographs themselves, I think there are two in particular that really stand out to me. Mm -hmm. And um, one is of a photograph of the back of a transportation truck with some soldiers gathered on the back. Mm. Being driven around Pyongyang, and I took—I actually took that from from a car from the car I was in, ah. and it was a very fleeting moment. And the reason was, and as I said earlier, you, you kind of ride this wave of when you you feel you should and shouldn't take a picture. In that case, um, it wasn't a hostile interaction. The soldiers on the back of that van were blowing me kisses ah. and were waving to me and joking with their friends, and I was waving back to them. And um, they were shouting things to me from the back of that van, and so I, I took a photograph of them. And mm-hmm. I think, um, and I've added that in into the captions. And and the captions I've tried to create this kind of three D feel around each image, yes. um, That it just feeling like a flat picture. And and I think when you have the context of that, it completely changes how you see a picture, and therefore how you see the people. Mm. And another image that I really I love and um just so grateful to have because it is completely the way it it completely reflects the way i felt when i met the people there was of a woman who works in one of the shooting ranges Mm -hmm. in Pyongyang and she's looking out towards the shooting range booths where all the customers are firing firing their guns and there were a couple of north korean men there and she's just staring into the distance and that image is really powerful for me because i spent the entire time wondering what it was north korean people think Hmm. what what have they been through you know you you have very limited opportunities to ask them and even if you can what you can actually ask them about specifically and so that photograph really sums that up for me of being that close to somebody and seeing them look at something so longingly or maybe not maybe they're just daydreaming but you will just never ever know you'll never be able to get Inside their head and connect with them mm. on that deep level.
0: Now, um, in North Korea, so you were there, uh, as you said, for two years, from the the summer of two thousand seventeen till when did you leave in twenty nineteen?
1: So, twenty nineteen, I was kind of backwards and forwards a lot in twenty nineteen, actually. So, um, we finished in summer twenty nineteen, mm. so that was around sort of August, sort of July August time.
0: Western diplomats tend to come and go, not staying in Pyongyang for more than a few months at a time before earning a a trip to the outside world, say uh, China or, or back to wherever they came from. And I understand that while there's no hard and fast rule, the British Foreign Office recommends rotating out every six weeks with six months being the absolute limit. So the question to you is, during those two years, what was the longest single stretch you spent inside North Korea?
1: I think for me, it was two months i think um it varies from person to person and particularly among the community you know you find people that have been there for months on end particularly at the moment as well with the coronavirus mm. restrictions there's been a lot of people who have been there for a long time and i can imagine that that would that would be very very challenging um but yeah. for me it would be about two months and and something that was really interesting was that you really felt like you needed a break and it mm. feels really selfish and privileged to say that because it's never lost on me or anyone else really that North Korean people have no choice but to stay Uh, but you really felt really felt it and um, particularly during 2017 and during the missile nuclear crisis Mm. and the war of words with the U.S. you really did feel like you needed to relieve that pressure in some way Um, and to get to somewhere else outside of that space. And as you as you mentioned, most of the time that is China, whether that be heading up to Dandong or whether that be heading off to Beijing for a couple of days.
0: And so that would, would give you both a feeling of relief and a feeling of, of privilege or guilt sometimes, would it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that I always describe it as the sort of tumble dryer of of emotions because you do feel incredibly guilty mm. for being able to leave. You feel incredibly guilty for feeling guilty Mm. and you end up in this perpetual circle of just not knowing how you feel about something because you feel everything you feel is inappropriate and it's really hard and it's hard to explain and as I say that's that's why I I wrote the book because it's really difficult to explain that to people who haven't been there and experienced it themselves but I think it's important for people who haven't to understand.
0: Now on page 12 you wrote uh, when you went there you had no idea that over the next two years what you'd always considered to be the clear line between truth and fiction would disintegrate entirely. Could you tell us a bit about that? What did you mean by that?
1: Sure, so I think when it comes to North Korea in particular uh, uh, and any place you know as I said you try to learn as much as you can about the place before you go And in the case of North Korea, for me, that was through watching as many documentaries as I could, reading as many books, listening to interviews, just trying to get a sense of the place and what it would feel like. And even though I'd done all that preparation, as soon as I got there and the initial shock and the overwhelming... Um, feeling of just being swamped by information of what you were seeing and the little things from what people wear to what they eat to what music they like to listen to. Once that wears off, Mm. you realise that all the things that you'd read don't really stand up anymore because what you're seeing is different. It's a different lens that you're seeing it through because it's your own eyes. It's not through any means of propaganda. It's not an edited um, segment A featured segment on the news, for example, it is just everyday life, and and in saying that, you know, you you still don't know what's really going on underneath. Mm. You walk past people in the street, and I would think a lot of the time, what what has that person been through? What have their family been through? Have they had their house raided? Have like what have they had family imprisoned? Are they very secure and happy?
2: Mm.
1: You just have no idea and yet it's all around you and you just can't lock into it and so for me um, that was really difficult and in terms of that truth and reality that translated into social relationships and it was really that that blurred the lines for me because anywhere in the world you get to know people you ask them about their lives you share information about each other over some drinks you invite each other around to each other's houses and you obviously can't do that there but in terms of relationships there was never any clear line when speaking to a North Korean between authenticity and falseness. Mm. And so you never knew if the person you were speaking to was genuinely interested in you or if they'd been tasked with some ulterior motive, which was entirely possible. You know? And then you think, well, how do I know I can trust this person? And then on top of that, the conversations you have are limiting because you have to avoid certain topics because it might pose a risk to the person you're speaking to or to yourself. And then you find yourself stuck in the middle, the two of you stuck in the middle of this kind of controlled cage, trying to balance that natural curiosity Mm. with careful small talk in an effort to actually just get to know each other. So that that was a really difficult thing. It's very much like a hall of mirrors, and you still have to find yourself there and make something of it.
0: Could you tell us about the curious incident of uh, finding a mobile phone in a restaurant?
1: Sure. So in terms of living there as a foreigner there's a very big awareness from everybody that even though we live there without a a minder next to us or a um, guide that there's still some kind of monitoring in place and i was in a a restaurant with a friend and we were just having a conversation nothing particularly interesting Mm. and a phone rang and now like a lot of places in in pyongyang they tend can sometimes be empty and um, some places can be particularly busy this place was empty it was just us that were there and um, we were sitting next to a windowsill with some plastic flowers decorating the shelf mm-hmm. and a phone rang and we thought oh well who's whose is that so, and my friend said it well, was not me and I, it wasn't me and it was coming from underneath the flowers on the windowsill yeah. and the waitress came running over and she said hello and she and she'd been chatting to us, you know, the odd word here and there, as we'd been there over the course of the afternoon. She Mm. she reached her hand underneath the flowers and picked up the phone. And the name of the person phoning was on the screen. And she answered it in front of us and started talking on the phone. And, you know, my Korean isn't particularly good, but I could kind of sense from the way she was speaking that she wanted to get the phone call off the line as quickly as possible she she said goodbye and she went back to the screen and i could see that it had a kind of recording screen on the like your voice memos on an iphone yeah and then she slipped it back underneath the flowers and just walked off and and was there for the rest of our our meal and we when we left we paid the bill and she was very friendly and that was that and it just went completely
0: unacknowledged and what do you make of that
1: well i think there's two things i think the first thing is those kind of situations confirm to you that it's not, you know, you you don't have unlimited freedom. You're never going to, and anyone who thinks that that's the case is very naive. It definitely confirms that there are eyes and ears everywhere, and it gives you a sense of what it's like to have that as a part of your life. I've never experienced that before. And living in the UK, it's, you know, it's just not something you ever think about. You can have conversations with people and not even be aware of of other people listening maliciously. But then the other side of that, and, and again, that's something I wanted to write about, was it's almost comical in the way it's handled and not to undermine the seriousness of why that's there and the position that that puts that North Korean in. But the fact that she answered it in front of us and was perfectly happy to put it back, you know, tell told me that just because those things happen doesn't mean it's a malicious act by that individual in front of you because they have no choice. The waitress was probably under instructions to do that and she's just doing her job and and like everybody else, they're trying to survive and, and follow the rules.
0: Actually, if you want to hear my hypothesis, I've got a, a bit of a different take on it. Um, I think that uh, mobile phones in North Korea um, started to become a real thing around you know, the late 2000s, certainly by the time I got there in, in 2010, a lot of people had them, but North Korea has um, been you know, listening to foreigners' conversations for many years before that. So my thinking is that if the North Korean government was the one that wanted to listen to you, uh, it, it would have found a... Uh, a device that didn't also have a mobile phone attached to it to put in those flowers to listen to. So I actually think that it's possible uh, that the waitress perhaps wanted to uh, to record some people speaking English for her own private reasons, like she wanted to uh, practice pronunciation or hear what English sounds like or something. And that may have been her own choice entirely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's another thing. I mean, just you just will never know. And and in in the case you've just mentioned, I mean, yeah, I, and I've experienced that myself. In other situations I got experience that a lot of people filming me and taking photographs as is, is perfectly understandable mm. and I taught yoga actually on as for the diplomatic community there and some North Korean women attended some of those yoga classes mm. and there were at different locations around the compound and quite a lot of the time the women would take photographs of every individual pose um, and record things so as you say, it's entirely possible that it was just natural curiosity. And that in itself is really interesting. You realize that, and that's another part of the responsibility you feel of being there is that you are a three-dimensional walking, talking act of the outside world. Yeah, And you have to take that responsibility really seriously.
0: Now, you mentioned the diplomatic compound. This is the the Munsu diplomatic compound, right?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And and so you lived uh, on that compound and your husband also worked on that compound?
1: Yes, that's right. So the diplomatic compound has, is where the international organizations are based. Well, most of them, the um, mm. Chinese and Russian embassies are not, and as well as some others, but most are. Um, And so it's kind of like a cul-de-sac, really. But the interesting thing about it is that everybody who's there is working and living there. Yeah. And it's also surrounded by North Korean apartment blocks. And North Koreans pass through the compound a lot. Mm. um taking shortcuts which is which i always thought was a bit strange Mm. and it could have been that they were going to school you see a lot of children going to school or students couples businessmen cutting through and and they were always very interested and particularly younger children were really interested in seeing the foreigners who lived there and would often say hello some would also be quite scared Um, but it was a really interesting place to be in terms of its location and it's also one of the poorest areas of the city as well which i always thought was quite interesting
0: and the north korean women who came on the compound to attend the yoga classes did they require special permission or do you think they were just locals who lived nearby and who wandered on and, and ended up in a yoga class
1: so they did require permission they were usually associated with the locations where i taught And they had to ask their boss or whoever their line manager was to be able to attend. And they really enjoyed it. And some of them seemed to actually know quite a lot about it, a lot more than I did. Mm. um, And took a really big interest. But it was just a really nice opportunity to do something together, an activity together, that felt very neutral. And just for the sake of having fun and getting to know each other.
0: Now, did you learn Korean to any useful degree?
1: So I think a lot of people who are there and learn North Korean in Pyongyang like I did mm. will say that it is possible to learn, but the opportunities to use it are very limited. Um, before I left, I had no Korean and that was quite a strange feeling for me i did languages at university and i've always been very used to going to places where i can communicate and in the case of going to north korea i didn't have the language so as soon as i got there i was like i have to get something under my belt yeah just be respectful of people there and just because i wasn't used to that feeling of being so isolated with that language and so i had lessons with a north korean language teacher um as a lot of the internationals did.
0: So is this sort of like an organized effort or, uh, offered by the North Korean government for the diplomatic community?
1: That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So there's there's um in, I think it's just one teacher. I could be wrong, but as far as I knew, it was one teacher that was available to teach Korean. And um and they were very good, but the I kind of reached a bit of a a block with it because it was in terms of the teaching and practicing it and the learning it, I was using north korean books and worksheets and it was very dry the, the mm. way it was taught was copy me copy and repeat yes and the teacher would speak and you just keep going over it which was great for the accent mm. and and really trying to and learning local words and north korean vocabulary in particular but it got to a point where my teacher just wanted me to be able to go to the market order what i needed to order go to restaurants go to shops or a bar or something and it never it never really went beyond that. There was a real resistance for me to be able to ask anything besides what is this mm-hmm. you know the, the kind of basic functional day to day language and I remember bringing in some South Korean textbooks actually and working on those with them and and you know they were very open to that,
0: mm-hmm. and I don't
1: think it had been the first time anyone had brought South Korean textbooks in. But I do know people who had been there for three years who had been learning Korean and had really excellent language skills, having learned it there. But they said themselves, it was so difficult to actually be able to practice it outside of those situations like going to the market or a shop. So I ended up stopping my lessons after a while because I just found it so frustrating Mm. that I wasn't learning what I wanted to learn. I thought, well, I might as well. Just kind of see how much i can do myself would
0: north koreans uh, and i don't mean your teacher but just ones that you would meet here and there would they feel awkward about speaking korean with you was was there a discouragement from using korean with with north korean people
1: i never experienced that i i always experienced the opposite um the only kind of shock would really come from uh, children usually who would mm. just be very shocked and to hear a foreigner speaking their language in terms of adults they were just always very excited and and quite a lot of my conversations with North Korean friends were actually of them laughing at how bad my Korean was or laughing at my writing and things and and it was always a really positive experience so I never really had that where someone was standoffish because they Mm. knew I could speak a little bit it was always the opposite way around
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about how you got around the city of Pyongyang. Uh, did you ride a bike around the city?
1: I did ride a bike a couple of times, but the most common way to get around is is by car. And mm-hmm. um, just simply for functional reasons, the Munsu Sudong compound takes about sort of 20 to 30 minutes to get into central Pyongyang and to get around. And, and quite a lot of the time, the locations where a lot of foreigners like to go are quite spread out. Um, so the easiest way is to drive a car, and in order to do that, you have to sit a North Korean driving test, which I've written about in the book.
0: Tell us about that experience.
1: So the so the driving test um, was uh, within a couple of weeks of me arriving, uh, my interpreter had said, you know, you have to you have to tick this off your list and get your license, and I thought, oh, that will be fine. And I'd been told by other people who had sat the test that it was very different for women sitting the test as it was hmm. for men. And some male foreigners who were in the compound were kind of joking around the fact that they had only had to drive straight forwards for you know a couple of hundred meters and then yeah. reverse, and then they passed. Wow. Whereas a lot of women had said that they'd had to do all kinds of maneuvers, and really long theory test, hazard perception test. Mm. And so I kind of prepared myself that when I was gonna do it, that it was gonna be really tough and i would automatically be given more tasks and problem solving to do with my driving than men would and so i showed up to the the driving site and met the driving examiner who strongly smelled of soju and was very excited to be taking a driving test with me Um, he was very very friendly and he jumped in the passenger side of the car and we were driving around the city and it was all going very well and um he kept tapping me on the shoulder and giving me a thumbs up and he was making jokes with me when he got in the car like should i get in is it safe to get in Mm. and that put me at ease a bit but we were driving past um some of the murals in the city of which there are obviously many and
0: these are murals of uh, of the leaders
1: that's correct yes and he started waving his hand up and down and I thought, oh, you know, I don't know what he's doing. Just thought nothing of it. And, um, my interpreter had to be with me. Who's, who's translating in the back seat. And, and he said, oh, he's saying you need to slow down. And so I slowed down and he kept waving his hand more and more and more. And it got to the point where I was driving so slowly past, mm. um, these murals that it felt like we were barely moving and um my interpreter just reminded me and said you have to make sure that every time you drive past these murals or a figure of the statues of, yes. of the leaders that you have to slow down and you would see that happening all over the city cars would slow down although not to the same speed i was brought down to at that ah. moment and then afterwards it, it was fine and i passed so that that was thankful <laughs> thankfully i passed because i think yeah. it would have been quite difficult to get around otherwise.
0: I didn't know that foreign drivers also had to slow down when passing images of the Kims.
1: Well, that's what they've they said. I mean, hmm. in terms of slowing right down, that like many things, you know, there are these rules and, and restrictions, and then there are some things that can be bent slightly. Um, and that was definitely one of them that people tend to bend a lot, which was, you know, to slow down a little bit, but not,
0: yeah. you know,
1: to five miles an hour, for example.
0: Now, it seems that if if foreign men only had to drive forward a few hundred metres and then backwards and then they'd pass the test, then they might have missed that whole bit about uh, slow down when you pass an image and that could have got them into trouble in the long run.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely possible. I mean, certainly in terms of North Queen drivers, I've seen quite a few being stopped um, Ah. going past those those same places um, and Mm -hmm. being pulled out by traffic police and having their ID taken um, for going too fast.
0: Now, driving around, did you see a lot of other... Um, women driving by themselves in Pyongyang?
1: Um, in terms of foreigners, not really. Um, some some people, yes, but we a lot of um, organizations have drivers assigned to them as well, so you know they don't people don't need to drive themselves, but I preferred mm. to do that. Um, in terms of North Koreans, in the whole time I was there, I think I saw two women driving. Mm. I saw one North Korean woman driving a car, and then I saw one North Korean woman driving a bus. And that was all I saw. And I spoke to a North Korean female friend about it and said, you know, do you drive? I was kind of making a joke, but mm. also trying to figure out for real what she thought about it. Right. And I said, you know, do you drive? And, and she said, oh, no, women don't drive. That's not that's not for women to do.
2: Ah. Oh, um, right.
1: So I always wondered what they then thought of me in that case um, yeah. from driving all the time.
0: Now, you write that taxis and and using the uh, the metro or subway were only to be done if booked in advance. Can you explain more about that?
1: Sure. So in terms of the underground and taxis, you know, taxis especially, they're everywhere and definitely a very popular way of getting around. And and especially for North Koreans and some of whom I spoke to, they were much more reliable than getting the public transport system, which could take them hours, you know, to Mm. get across from one side of the city to the other. Um, but even North Koreans told me they had to book these taxis in advance. They they wouldn't be flagged down at the side of the road. They were always reserved. Hmm. Um, for foreigners, we were not able, I mean, and certainly in my experience, I was never able to book one. But that was also because m- mobile phones, local mobile phones used by foreigners only connect to other foreigners' mobile phones. Yeah. They don't connect to local North Koreans apart from your interpreter. So if you want to organize anything, whether that is, you know, going to a certain gym or something or organizing a language lesson, it all has to be done via your interpreter who has two phones and it makes everything very long and can be quite frustrating um, because you can't do it yourself. And that was the case for taxis. So if you wanted to take a taxi, you could take one, but you would, in order to book it, you would have to ask your interpreter who would then have to phone them and then phone you back to let you know. And it was just such a hassle. Yeah. But there were stories of people who had flagged them down, but in my experience, I'd never exper- I'd never done that myself.
0: So I've heard that uh, uh, before that, that foreigners can only uh, connect to other foreigners on their mobile phone, but could you call your interpreter?
1: I could call my interpreter because he had a phone, like they all do, they had a phone that connected two foreigners' phones. So he had two, and then he had another phone that was a North Korean phone that then called, could call other North Koreans.
0: So there's at least a small population of North Koreans who can uh, phone foreigners or be phoned by foreigners, and that's the interpreters and guides?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Right. Now what about, did you ever ride on uh, one of the trams or trolley buses?
1: You know, I never got to ride on one of those and those were strictly that that was a rule to say that you couldn't use those. And I mean, I always wondered if that was the if it was the case, because it was to prevent foreigners from getting too close to Koreans or preventing Koreans getting too close to foreigners. Mm. Um, But no, I never took any of those driving, driving and walking. I love to walk. Yeah was my favorite way of getting around walking particularly for taking photographs as well just meeting people is just by far the preferable way to get around.
0: What was the furthest you and your husband could travel before you had to have papers or get a permit or some prior arrangement?
1: So a popular place to go for many foreigners is Nampo. Um, hmm. it doesn't take too long to get there, um, as with anywhere in North Korea and around the city, there are military checkpoints all over the place. Going to Nampo was pretty straightforward. You just drive there for the day and that's you. And I think with everywhere else, with Wonsan, well, Sinuiju and um, Kumgang region, because they are particularly security-heavy areas as with yes. anywhere in the world, you have to notify the authorities that you want to go there. And particularly for the Kumgang area, you have to then go there with um, North Korean guides because it's so strictly secured. Mm. Wonsan you would have to give notification that you were going there as well as I mentioned I love walking I love hiking I've grown up in Scotland walking up mountains and it's just something I really love and that's something I love to do there as well and um, Mount Muhang is is also fairly nearby. It takes a couple of hours to drive yeah. there from Pyongyang. So that was a particularly favourite place to go. And and um, I went there a number of times and absolutely loved it there. It's so beautiful.
0: Uh, were there times when you used the uh, local North Korean won currency or did you have to use uh, fo- foreign currency most of the time?
1: So it was a mix really. It depended on where I was. Um, when I arrived in the country, I was told that I should bring as much sort of crisp dollar bills or euros Mm. that i had um chinese currency as well could also be used in one shop i was given a british pound coin as Ah. change. so (laughs) that only happened on one occasion but that was a bit of a shock yeah in terms of north korean won there were only particular places that would actually accept north korean won from foreigners anyway
0: yeah um
1: and that was tongil market um, some of the department stores as well. and there would be money exchange booths at those locations where you would hand over your foreign currency and they would then exchange it for North Korean One and you would spend that. And North Koreans had to do the same thing. Um, and you'd often see people, particularly at the market and they probably owned well not owned but ran restaurants um, would hand over a significant amount of foreign currency to stock up on whatever ingredients it was that they needed for their their restaurants.
0: Now the tongil market's an interesting place because uh, you know um it's been open for a long time sometimes foreigners are allowed to go there sometimes they're not usually they don't let you take photographs there could you tell us your experience with the tongil market
1: so i really enjoyed going to tongil market i was never turned away um there's actually a foreigners parking area um hmm. directly out the front where they've reserved about seven or eight spaces and um, which are really difficult to get into because it's so busy with taxis and it's it's just over come with people everywhere. Um, but they reserve with traffic cones spaces for foreigners so they can drive in and that's by the front door. Yeah. Uh, I never was uh, I never took any photos in there because it was made very, very clear that that's completely restricted.
0: Do they have a sign up with a sort of a a red line through a camera or something? Yeah, they do. Uh Yeah,
1: they had a big sign up on the door and you see um, women patrolling up and down in red outfits with hats on, walking up and down the aisles. And it's very, very restricted. Um, I know some people have, but I didn't ever feel that was appropriate. And the I loved the market. I mean it reminded me actually of a lot of the markets I used to go to with my grandmother in Glasgow Mm. where the atmosphere was just so fun. And the women, because they're all female market sellers, would all be shouting across the aisles to each other and Ah. they would all be, you know, handing me things. If if there was a product that was North Korean, they would be really enthusiastic about it. Particularly Mm. Apples, really enthusiastic about me buying these you know they all say very very tasty like apples um and they were really fun and they would you know banter with the customers they yeah. you know i'd go to buy something from one seller and the woman next to her is like no no you can come over here come over here don't listen to her she's a liar uh-huh. don't you know and um and i got to know some of the women who worked there as well and what was interesting was the first time i went i went with the north korean woman and um because i was with a local person the prices of everything immediately dropped and then when Ah. i went back myself i had to keep saying to them well last time i came here and it was this much so Ah. so it's not going to be more so but it was interesting to see that they they do barter and they negotiate prices Mm -hmm. and um you hear a lot of a lot of north koreans wanting better deals for what it is they're buying and it's also a popular place for people to go on dates you see Uh, a lot of uh. young couples Wandering around, holding hands, browsing through all the products.
0: Is it big? Is it is it like a single large warehouse?
1: It is. I actually think it's moving. I think they they had plans to put it somewhere else, but where where it is at the moment, it's just mm. a huge, as you say, huge warehouse. And you go in and up to just behind above your head, there's a sort of balcony and a set of stairs that go up to, it and that's the money office. And then in front of you is just huge aisles of tables and. Um, To your left, you've got meats and fish um, and then in the center you've got kind of dried snacks, oil, things like that. And then on Mm. the right, you've got a lot of clothes and material, electronic goods, you know, house, carpets, um, things for the house, houseware. And it's it's absolutely enormous. And there's always constantly vans coming in and delivering big boxes um, to stock up all of the tables there. It
0: sounds fascinating. To what extent would you say that the North Koreans you met in and interacted with were typical North Koreans?
1: So I think in terms of how you describe North Koreans as being typical, mm. in my experience, that I just find people to be very warm, very friendly, very funny, um, and very generous and curious in, in nature um, mm. in terms of outside of the social situations I found myself in, it's impossible to know. And that was what was so frustrating. Trying to get to know someone on a a deep and meaningful level was really difficult. Um, But in terms of uh, what I managed to find out about the North Queens, I feel very privileged to be able to form friendships with. I I just found them to be very friendly and very warm.
0: How did the, the people you talked with see the world and North Korea's place in it?
1: So, as I mentioned earlier, the frustrating thing about having a conversation with a North Korean person is that you obviously have a lot of questions that you want to ask them. And the, mm. and the obvious things are, what do you think about North Korea right? and and its place in the world? What do you think about your leader? What, you know, if, if it was even possible for them to answer honestly, you would just would love to be able to answer those questions but i think there's also a limit in that and that you end up kind of approaching people as as kind of an example of where they're from and not looking at them as an individual but looking at them for their kind of political views which are also important in getting to know someone but i never Mm. wanted anyone to feel like the reason i was talking to them is because i was digging because i wanted to know yeah because that wasn't fair on them and actually a lot of the time i try to avoid asking those kinds of questions in terms of north korea's place in the world during kim jong un's first visit to beijing i remember standing next to a group of north korean women and i was watching it on north korean state news being broadcast and it had already happened in the days before yeah. but north korean state news was just broadcasting it there and then and up until that that broadcast some of these women knew what was going on because some of the foreigners had told them Mm -hmm. Um, and they had been asking and were really curious and then when they were watching the images on the television they were genuinely excited and texting their friends Mm -hmm. it was a big big moment and um, there genuinely seemed to be a sense of optimism of some kind and and as I say, just excitement that that the they were there as a country on the world stage. It was outside of North Korea and mixing with foreign political leaders. And so if I take that example and apply it to other things, it's entirely possible that North Korean people could feel that way in other moments as well about North Korea's place. In 2018, you know, in the Singapore summit, hanoi summit and um other visits you know minji and visiting pyongyang for the first time it's entirely possible that they felt the same way then but it was, it was never i never felt it was appropriate to directly ask them that question
0: did they uh, offer any statements about north korea's nuclear program and its strategic importance
1: in terms of the nuclear program a lot of them would would be very good at arguing the case for why it was necessary, and it was usually to do with self defense mm. um, against the U.S. Um, and South Korea, and it was a protection mechanism. But beyond that, there was never there was never any indication of any other opinion. Um, I remember standing in the square outside Pyongyang train station when the nuclear test in 2017 was announced. And I, oh, I yeah. saw, and I've put some pictures in the book of a crowd of North Korean people in front of state media mm-hmm. cameras who are jumping up and down and shouting and singing. But I was standing in front of that crowd with yeah. other passers-by who, this had just come on the TV, a uh, big screen. was being announced and and it was a very mixed reaction some people clapped and looked Mm. happy and then other people didn't really look that bothered and Mm. some people were encouraging their friends to just leave it and get on with going to wherever it was they were going so I think it's definitely a kind of mixed mixed sentiment when it comes to those kind of moments.
0: In your book you write about conversations you say uh quote, these conversations fueled my enduring belief that North Korean people know much more about the outside world than we might think. Um, what do you think is the major source of, for North Korean people um, of information about the outside world, given that the newspapers are quite you know, slim, not many pages, and mostly there's a focus on local news, and the same could be said for TV coverage?
1: Well, I think we know that Um, particularly south korean media is popularly distributed and watched and engaged with by north korean people i personally never saw it being distributed but then i wouldn't because Mm -hmm. it's illegal and there's extremely dangerous consequences for people who are caught but it was certainly evident that there was some influence from the outside world on people's opinions and that went from uh, the level of the way people dress particularly women and hairstyles were becoming these kind of short bob hairstyles were becoming more popular than the long more traditional styles um wearing jewelry and shoes as a way of self-expression which was only fairly recently allowed um and that translated into things like preference over certain items you know mm. I knew some north korean people who said that it wasn't a good idea to buy certain Chinese products, particularly electrical goods. It was much better to buy Japanese or British or other goods. Um, they're much more reliable. And during the during twenty eighteen, I went to the pop concert, the inter Korean pop concert in Pyongyang, and was watching a lot of the crowd watching this the K pop groups perform. Mm. I'm just wondering you know, how many of these people have heard these songs before, but can't yeah. show that they have. And, and you know, the older generation in particular, quite a few of them were quite willing to dance and be very involved with that music, but the younger ones definitely were much more still, but that could have been for any reason. Mm. So I think it's more seeing the effects of, of the outside world on people. And there's certainly an openness that I found with North Koreans who have been around foreigners. maybe have been abroad maybe have studied a language before there's just a really different energy about someone um that you could immediately tell was there um and that was really interesting because those people were all over the place and not just in the munsudong district or not just in certain restaurants or bars Mm. they were just they were throughout the city and it was just kind of a case of luck really whether you stumbled across someone like that or not
0: now, you write that um, uh, the North Koreans who had been around foreigners, that they'd heard plenty about the Internet and you know, more specifically, Facebook and Amazon. So what are the what things did they want to know about? What were they curious about? And what would they ask you about the outside world?
1: So they did. And. Um... And I think that was very telling that there was a confidence there from some people to ask those questions. They didn't all; they weren't always asked straight away. It took a bit of time to get to know each other first, mm-hmm. and I guess they would also need to trust us as well, speaking to them that that it would be, you know, a low risk thing. In terms of the internet and Amazon, a, a few North Koreans I spoke to were actually kind of sick of hearing about it because I think they'd been around a lot of foreigners who wanted to be the first person to introduce them to Facebook. And they'd said to me, you know, this one particular North Queen said, I wish people would just shut up and stop telling me about Facebook. I know what it is, mm. um, what they they often asked about. And I, and I sometimes wondered if this was because they questioned this themselves about their own country, was they were very interested in Brexit. They were very interested in the Scottish independence referendum. Mm. I remember having a conversation about Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish leader, and um, my criticisms that I had of her and um, the direction Scotland was going in and things. And they find that really interesting. But that also translated into other things as well, like asking to see photographs or asking me what it was like when I went to Hong Kong, for example, or somewhere on holiday. And we would often share photographs with each other showing on our phone and one particular friend really enjoyed seeing pictures of Hong Kong another was fascinated with beaches and the sea because they'd grown up on the coast and said that they never got to go very often um, Mm. to see the sea anymore and they missed it and so they were they just loved to look at pictures of the water and so I find people to be after a period of getting to know each other, quite forthcoming and and very curious. And one even asked me you know, what South Korea was like, and it never felt like it was a dangerous conversation in any way, it just felt very natural. Whether that was for them or not remains to be seen.
0: Had you already visited South Korea at that time?
1: So I actually didn't visit South Korea until after I'd been in North Korea for, I think it was seven months, um, Mm -hmm. maybe eight months. And obviously, it's usually the other way around um, yeah. for people comparing the two. So for me, it was a really overwhelming experience to then go to Seoul. And I think the thing that really struck me was the noise. The mm-hmm. the I didn't associate the language and the the melody of the language with so many bright lights, busyness, people.
2: Yeah,
1: so much information. It felt really overwhelming but what i found really quite emotional actually was just just seeing how similar people were you know having been born not that far away from each other and that was that was really really touching to see i mean touching feels like it's kind of undermining the enormity of it to be honest and that's the problem with this (laughs) this whole thing is trying to find the right word is very very difficult um but it w- it was interesting also to see the the border area from the other side, but more just everyday life, just how different it is.
0: And so, when you went back, did uh, many of your interlocutors ask you questions about Sol and, and what it had been like?
1: I didn't have anything directly after that particular trip, but I did have I did have a conversation with someone who, who did ask me about it. Um, was interested to know what it was like, how the people were, where they they were asking a lot, were they friendly and. Just wanted to know about about people's personalities more than anything else in mm. the actual city. But I I I, always, I sometimes asked you know a couple of North Korean friends if you could go anywhere, where would you like to go? And and I always night I mean simplistically thought oh well it must be South Korea. Mm-hmm. But actually a lot of the time they didn't say that. I mean one in particular said that they really wanted to go to Paris and see the River Seine. That was their dream. I used ah. to take a boat up the river and so again i think my judgment on people was unfair to just assume that everybody well everybody must think this way because people yes. are more complicated than that and it's important to be i think very humble about your own assumptions about people when you're in that situation and not impose what you think people should think
0: yeah, sure.
1: accept them for who they are
0: now, Lindsay, I'm curious, what's the position of women in North Korean society? You write that they seem to run and staff most bars and restaurants in Pyongyang, but that women didn't seem trusted in the system to run anything. What do you mean by that?
1: So the interesting thing was that, particularly in bars and restaurants, they were usually run by female staff exclusively, and that I could see um, they were managed by female staff and, the, and then um, sort of daily duties were, were carried out by female staff we know that North Korea is a patriarchal culture but the traditional role within women of women within the family has changed through necessity over the years and the women I met you know, traditionally they weren't. They they were no longer they weren't staying at home in the family in Pyongyang. I should also say, like this mm-hmm. is a very small case of people, and they weren't the middle aged women who were now, you know, bringing an in income from the grey economy with their, the men and the husbands working in party offices. They were telling me things like, "I want to have a career. I want to. I want don't want to have children. I don't have time for a, a relationship." these kind of things that I never thought would be possible for any woman in North Korea to feel or think, and that's obviously not the case for every woman at all, because mm. most have absolutely no choice whatsoever. But the fact there were some who felt that way was really interesting. But there were also, you know in every situation where you, whether you see a group of people working in a in an agricultural capacity or whether you see people working in a restaurant or or anywhere else, even though the staff may be women, sometimes a man does appear. Yeah, and you know, to what level they're at, I, I, I don't know. But there would always be a lot of running around, and just as when the boss comes into any office, you know, mm. to try and impress and things. But the actual kind of day-to-day running of places was mostly women, mm. which was really interesting.
0: Now tell us about uh, one woman, uh, Min Jong, with whom you had lots of conversations over your two years in North Korea. How did she distinguish herself from most women who worked in hospitality in North Korea that you encountered?
1: So I got on with Min Jong really well because she, as, I'm, as I've as i said, she she had a lot of experience around foreigners, obviously, because of her her openness. And she shared a lot of her Personal grumpiness with me, mm. which I really appreciated because I think particularly as a foreigner when you're there, a lot of north Koreans in in a hospitality setting want to put on a, a good impression as they, again as they do anywhere and uh, want you to have a nice time, want to look after you, and it's kept you know very professional but minjong was was very different in that she was quite surly um uh-huh. and really couldn't be bothered. Um, yeah. A lot of the time she she complained about how tired she was. Um, she just worked all the time. She didn't have time for her love life. And her parents were really trying to pressure her into getting married. And she was just fed up on going on dates with men who she described as lazy. And I just find it really refreshing to be able to speak to North Korean person without that level of not pretense, but um, distance. She was just automatically very connected to people and, and didn't really seem to care, it was very confident. And I just never really come across that before. Um, and, we, and we spent a lot of time talking to each other and getting to know each other in as much as we could in that environment.
0: Now, in your book, you write about uh, that there was a key question that always remained of how authentic your friendship with North Koreans uh, were. Uh, would that be also the case with Minjong or was that different?
1: I think it's safe to say that's probably the same with everybody. I mean, you you can't ever truly know, but that doesn't but it doesn't mean that any friendship you have with people isn't going to be real on some level. You just don't know to what to what level. Mm. And there is you know a lack of trust, I guess, that is always going to be there. But you know, I've I've I genuinely had to just trust my instincts when it came to things and. I don't think my instincts are always going to be right, but I certainly trust them. And I do know that certainly in the case of Minjong that we got on very well and it did feel like a real friendship. And I do cherish, cherish that huge privilege to have been able to build any kind of friendship with any North Korean in, in any capacity, because just getting to know each other in some way, I think is really important to breaking down those walls that are around, even if it's only in a very, very small way.
0: Did any North Korean ever give you a, a glimpse into the less happy aspects of the country, like perhaps mentioning uh, a friend or a loved one who had suddenly had to move to the countryside or had had some time receiving uh, special political education or anything like that?
1: I didn't experience any a conversation about anyone being sent away or or anything on that level. So it was always much more subtle than that. I, I had a few moments where I'd taken part in the Pyongyang marathon I hadn't run the full marathon but I'd run the 10k mm. and um
0: oh which year was that
1: uh that was 2018
0: okay I was there for the 2019 I did the 10k oh, then. Really? Yeah. oh great but I'm not a runner so I walked 10k but very fast
1: well I have to say I'm not a runner either so <laughs> I um I was walking by the end of it I think I started out very optimistic and then quickly realized that my training probably wasn't as thorough as it should have been <laughs> But I was I, while well, I was running round, I, I had a lot of friends from the foreign community were there, you know, cheering on the group of us who were running. There was about ten of us, I think, and um, and a friend of uh, I realised that a North Korean friend of mine had been there and had said to me afterwards, "Oh, I saw you running in the hmm. in the ten k." And I said, "Oh, great! Where were you standing?" And they said, "Oh, well, I was just standing near all you know, and the names of all the people from the foreign community had been there." And I said, oh, did you not say hello? And then they just shook their head and went, too much security. Did you see mm-hmm. all the security? And that happened a couple of times. I I was in a, a bar once um, enjoying a meal and there was a group of young North Korean students at mm-hmm. the next table all drinking lots of beer and soju and whiskey and having a great time. And they invited me over and said, you know, what are you doing in Pyongyang? What's your name? They wanted to practice a bit of their English. And then afterwards they said, well, it was really nice to meet you, but there's security here. So that we'll have to say goodbye. Mm. So the, the kind of mentions of security were the main thing that came up and, um, uh and i had that as well you know i'd see north korean people i knew and i would you instinctively you wave to people across the street and want to say hello and they kind of turned their head down and said sort of didn't want to make eye contact because there was a soldier nearby and even in saying that there was a again another situation where a north korean friend had there had been a a dog on the compound that had just been abandoned and tied to a tree and I became quite fixated on this dog I yeah. think I I think I put a lot of my emotions into saving this dog and um, became a bit obsessed by it and um, I asked some North Koreans I knew about the dog and um, they helped me find out who it belonged to hmm. and they'd said they'd asked one of the soldiers who, who worked there and yeah. he, he had said oh it doesn't belong to me but they said you know they, they sort of said that, rolling their eyes as if to say, "It is actually ah. you can't really trust what what people say."
0: Speaking of security, could you tell us the story of the uh, the baby at the water park restaurant?
1: Sure. So I was it was a summer afternoon. I was driving around Pyongyang, and it was always nice to go to new places. And I I ended up driving up through a forest into what turned out to be a water park. And it was really hot. So I thought, I'm just going to stop in here and have something to drink, maybe something to eat and just rest from the heat for a while. And it was absolutely full of people, colourful rubber rings, families there enjoying a day out. And there were some families it was sort of overlooking the restaurant areas in a sort of balcony overlooking the whole park. Mm. And around me, even though I was sitting at some tables, there were um, North Korean families around some barbecues um, surrounded by Taedongang bottles and and um, just having fun with their kids. And I was just sitting having a drink and just enjoying being around people, having fun and, and having a nice time. And um, an older man walked up to me and he had a rubber ring in his arms in the shape of a duck. Mm. And he had two small children next to him sort of hanging onto his trousers. And I said, hello, in Korean. And the children whispered and went, oh, in Korean. They said, oh, she speaks Korean. Mm. So I said hi to them and asked them their names. And then he introduced himself and and then just handed me this rubber ring. And I thought, "Mm, why is he doing, why is he handing me a rubber ring? It's a bit small for me. Um, And I took it and it actually had a baby in it. (laughs) <laughs> All wrapped up in little blankets, fast asleep. I mean, it only looked to maybe a month old. Oh wow! Brand new baby, and he just stood there next to me, just kind of lovingly looking at, at this baby. And I asked him what she was called, and he told me. And and he said to me, "Oh, do you have children?" And I and I said, "No, I don't." And then he pointed to his watch as if to say, "You know, oh, better, <laughs> better hurry up." Yes. Um and that was a common thing of like, you know, a woman being married but not having children was like a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. So uh so I ended up just holding this baby and just thinking, like, what is what what is going on? But it was a really lovely moment and I felt so frustrated because I didn't have enough of the language to be yeah. able to say any more than that. And that's something I would change if I were to do that again, it would be to absolutely get that under my belt. Um, but I just held this baby and while we had that moment, it was maybe lasted a few minutes, and there was a car that pulled up, and I heard a car door go, and there was no cars parked there apart from mine, because mm-hmm. people are bust in and out of these places than individual cars, and a man in a suit walked up and sat at a table near me, and the the man who's the grandfather of the baby sort of looked at me as if to say like okay give her back um and I, I handed her back and he smiled and said nice to meet you and then went back to his family meanwhile this man um who had showed up sat at the table and just sat watching us and I just very much felt like it was all kind of warning off and it was a it was just really sad is the only word i can use to describe it
0: so the, the man in the suit with the beer was there to uh discourage north koreans from interacting with you is that what you mean
1: that's what it felt like but yeah. it might not have been he might just have been the boss of the park you know it again you just you don't know and that's a frustrating thing
0: i mean of course i wasn't there uh but it does seem a bit of a stretch to think that you know somewhere in 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 a North Korean central office, there are men in suits ready to be called out at any time that a, a foreigner might have a, an unmonitored interaction with a North Korean and they, they drive to that location and they, they go there and, and park themselves in a location, you know, uh, at, to, to discourage people from talking to you. It, it's a lot of trouble to go to, you know, for him to have driven up there uh, just for that purpose.
1: Yeah, it is, and you and you end up thinking like, am I just making this up? Is this yeah. just in my head? Am I like buying into this mythology about the place and just creating this story around this thing? And I mean, the fact is, I don't know. Yeah. What I do know that happened was that it discouraged that interaction mm. from going on any longer. In what capacity that man was there, I just I don't know.
0: Did you have any tempt- Did you feel any temptation to go and and, and sit there and talk to him?
1: Not particularly, but then, you know, I was just kind of there minding my own business in the first place.
0: Sure, yeah, I think in my case, after the, you know, the the umpteenth time of of something like that happening, I might just uh, uh, be tempted to go over and say, all right, well, you know, uh, (laughs) since no one else will talk to me, maybe you will.
1: (laughs) Yeah, again, like that's, that's the thing, you, you end up going through these things in your head, ordinarily, you would just, you would just think, oh, well, I'll just go speak to you. But then because you're there, because yeah. of where you are, it does things to your head, where mm. your instincts are completely overridden by so many questions of, well, if yeah. I do this, what if this happens? If I do that, what does that, what does that mean? And you end up not behaving in the same way as you would ordinarily. It's mm. really strange. And it takes over your, your head it does things to you that's why you end up needing a break
0: you also write about something called the pyongyang effect uh, could you tell us a bit about that
1: yeah so what i call the pyongyang effect is an example of that where because of the environment we were in and and it was interesting because this, the foreign community there are relatively small for for a foreign country you know there there are not very many embassies there are not very many people there with the international organizations um and so is quite a small close-knit community you see each other all the time Mm. at the same events and through that you end up getting to know some people quite well but what you end because you're living so closely with people you end up seeing uh, the the effects of a place on someone where you might not ordinarily because you don't see them as much and in the case of living in Pyongyang as as I mentioned in the previous anecdote with This mind game that you play with yourself of questioning everything, and then your your behaviour alters. You you end up seeing that in other people as well. And what ended up happening to a lot of people, and it was hard not to be drawn in by it, was that because there's so little really known about the place in certain locations, people started to trade information about restaurants or gyms Mm -hmm. or whatever in the city as if it was currency. Yeah. And would get these, you know, very bright, reasonable people would end up fighting over this information and getting jealous of of this information. And an example of that was, you know, how how did you know that would be something that people would say a lot. You just think, well, you know, it's a restaurant it's it's just a restaurant in the city anywhere else it would it would be a perfectly normal thing for anyone else to go and you'd share that with people but there there was something about that place that that made people behave differently and think about information how it was used differently and if there was a a foreign product for example that was in demand i remember seeing an argument between two people one who had found coconut water in Mm -hmm. a restaurant and uh, or a shop and had come back to the compound with this coconut water and the other person was getting really annoyed because they just wouldn't tell them where they got it. Yeah. And this was in front of North Koreans as well. And you're just like, I feel so embarrassed and ashamed that we are all like this. Of all like, you know, just trying to remember this the environment you're in and what's going on around you. And this really isn't that important. And I just found that being there made me question everything on a really fundamental human level that things like that just weren't important but it was really hard not to be caught up in that because that was the effect that environment had on everybody there including me.
0: Having now talked about that Pyongyang effect are there any places that you went or saw that you think no other foreigner went or saw?
1: I don't think so and I think it's it's naive to think that way and and in all honesty I think it's good for foreigners who are there to get out and about and experience mm. the place as much as possible. And I think if the priority is to feel like, you know something someone else doesn't know, then you've missed the point of being there.
0: You mentioned that the uh, community of diplomats, aid workers and and family members, it's quite a small group. It must be a fascinating object of study.
1: Oh, it must be. Um, and I, th- I think there are very few people who have been there who have really written in depth about their experiences there. And for, mm. for what reasons, I'm not sure. I don't know if, I I know in John Everard's book, um, Only Beautiful Please, he mentions that he thinks it's possibly because it means that people might not be able to go back. Ah. And I think that's very possible that that's a factor. And there may be other things at play. But absolutely, I think that would be really interesting. I think it's yet to be looked into in more detail.
0: Who was the expat who'd lived there the longest that you met?
1: probably um, the russian ambassador he's he's been there a rather long time uh, in terms of the i mean that's the the russian embassy which is obviously not located on the mun compound right um there were people who had been there 5 years 6 years but what was interesting was that those who had been there longer mm-hmm. had an almost usually a skepticism about them and and a, in a when people left and I felt this as well there was a really big sense of defeat and I remember one person having a conversation they were telling me about a conversation they'd had with their interpreter and said I feel like over my time here and they'd been there I think for about four or five years they said to their interpreter I feel like if there's 10 doors I feel like I've only opened I think it was four or something wow. and their interpreter agreed with them hmm. um that that's probably about right.
0: Did you ever meet the Palestinian ambassador?
1: Um, I probably did at some event, but I don't, I don't really remember exactly off the top of my head.
0: I believe he's been there about nine or ten years now, so I think he, he mm. may be one of the longest-serving uh, expats and uh, doesn't get a lot of time out.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think the place definitely gets under your skin, and mm. um, certainly as an outsider, it's so fascinating, and when you're there yourself, it just does have an effect on you.
0: Without identifying um, or or embarrassing anybody, what was the uh, the oddest person you met?
1: The oddest person,
0: or the oddest behavior you saw from an expat?
1: I mean, oddest behavior for me. Uh, there was uh, I mean, certainly the the story of protecting information about ah. very simple day to day things, probably. But there was there was also another uh, instance where. I think a lot of people there wanted to help and wanted to do something and um, would, as I said earlier, would speak to North Korean people as if trying to educate them about everything all the time and kind of miss the point that they're human mm. beings and they're people and don't want to be lectured all the time about mm. why their country's wrong or they're wrong and just want to be spoken to as the individual person they are. And that's the thing I find most difficult to watch really and i tried really hard not to do that and it was hard not to do that and i mm. didn't always succeed either but that that was certainly quite difficult to <laughs> to be around a lot of the time
0: now you met some north koreans who had traveled and lived abroad uh, how could they be distinguished from north koreans who had only ever lived inside the country
1: i think there was an instantaneous o- sense of openness with people I mean certainly if, if someone spoke a foreign language there was a confidence there to practice it and in the book i've mentioned a certain interaction i had with someone who spoke spanish and spanish is one of the languages i did at university and so and i lived there and i i know it very well and the girl who'd spoken to me was working in a shop and She initially had started speaking English to me and I was quite surprised and thought, wow, she's really confident to just, Mm -hmm. to talk to me. And, um, we ended up having a lovely conversation in Spanish and she was so surprised that I could speak a language that wasn't English. Yeah. I don't know why, but she, she was, and we spoke about her time abroad and she'd, she'd lived in South America and Mm. had, was very proud to tell me about her foreign friends she had. And we spoke about the fact that she couldn't contact them anymore now that mm-hmm. she was back in North Korea, but there was a definite sense of, i say, openness with people. But even in people who probably hadn't travelled in Pyongyang, certainly there was always a, I always said like, made a point of holding people's gaze ten seconds longer than you would normally, because I always found like in that in that couple of seconds more. Mm -hmm. people dropped the kind of curious look and smiled and waved and said hello or said hello in English um and were very friendly even though at first they might appear quite cold.
0: Did you ever try to visit a North Korean house or apartment?
1: I didn't um that is strictly forbidden for to to happen and that's a, again another frustrating thing you get to know someone in the case mm. of the girl that spoke spanish that situation you're in a new country you'd say oh here's my number let's you know go for a coffee meet each other's friends go around and visit each other's homes but that just can't happen
0: was that uh, expressly sp- like did anyone actually say to you look um welcome to north korea but this is something you can't do you can't go to somebody's house or apartment or was it just understood
1: it, for me, it was just understood if it was kind of a written rule, then that wasn't the way that I got that information. It was just understood from everybody. Mm. But interactions were mainly in public spaces, yeah but that again, there was an intrigue there and in that you're, you're living around other people and seeing these homes and at night, when you see them lit up, you just think what, what is life like for the people who are living yeah. inside there, particularly in winter when it's so cold.
0: What about having north koreans over as guests to your house on the compound was that possible
1: um i mean there are north koreans who work on the international compound with different organizations who work as interpreters or mm. you know, whatever else it is that they do um there are different businesses that are used for um hospitality and and functions and things so so would be around and you get to see similar faces um but it would use it would be in an official capacity rather than a personal
0: ah yeah uh, how did you experience the year 2018 when it seemed like uh you know north korea and the united states and north korea and south korea had turned a corner uh, and relations were going to improve and then of course you know president moon Jae-in of south korea visited pyongyang uh you were there for a lot of that how how was that
1: so that was a really interesting part of being there was that like not just being able to watch it but to be able to feel what it was like there yeah um, on the ground so to speak and um particularly in 2018, during the Singapore summit, there was a real difference in the feel of day-to-day life there. And Mm -hmm. 2017 had been so tense. And I remember some North Korean friends talking about how worried they were about what they were reading in the media with Kim Jong-un and President Trump exchanging their war of words. And when yeah. they were genuinely seemed to me at least worried about it. And I, and I was too, we all were, and it felt very yeah. tense. It felt like a pressure cooker. And when it got to 2018, there was a definite sense of change, whether that was real or not. And, and what, you know, to what level that would translate politically remained to be seen, but the way it felt there, it was completely different. And, um, a lot of the inter Korean events at that time, following the South Korean Winter Olympics, the United Korea flag was used a lot, and it was around Pyongyang. It was displayed all over the city and yeah. The message of urihana we are one was used a lot as well it was used in the pop concert that was performed in twenty eighteen
0: and mm-hmm. particularly
1: North Koreans I met and knew they were really taken with that message we are one really moved by it and um it was impossible not to get swept up in that.
0: Did any of your North Korean friends talk about uh, hearing the South Korean president speak at the May Day Stadium in Pyongyang?
1: So I didn't, I don't think I had a conversation with anyone about that exact event. Um, when Moon Jae in visited, I wasn't in the country exactly when that happened, um, ah. but I was there around it. Um, I saw lots of the city being renovated. And spruced up for his visit, Um, and then obviously after he'd gone. But I wasn't there when that exactly happened, Um, so I'm afraid I can't really say on that one.
2: Mm.
0: Visually, Pyongyang is is a very impressive city. Sometimes it can be imposing or stark. Uh, Did you, during your time there, grow to love uh, some of the, um, you know, did you find beauty in the built environment of Pyongyang?
1: I think. It's it's a it's an interesting thing for me because I've i not visited a country where those kind of imposed imposing buildings exist, um, and so it's quite overwhelming at first. I think there's also a big variety between Pyongyang and Wonsan other urban environments, which was quite striking. Mm. Like the quality of housing, for example, is very different between the cities, um, and then obviously there's the countryside as well. But something that was interesting to me, it was that when I first arrived, I, that, those were the things I noticed most, were the yeah. style of architecture and the pictures of the leaders and the propaganda, but that all mm-hmm. faded away after the first few months and, and just kind of sunk into the background, really. Mm. And, and that was, it, it was just, it was, it was there and I knew it was there and, and like the propaganda as well, I knew it was there, but I just didn't engage with it.
0: Yeah. Did anyone ever tell you at any stage um, that North Koreans write reports about interactions or communications that they have with foreigners?
1: Um, I think, again, just as we mentioned earlier with going into people's houses, that it was assumed. I mean, it's assumed Hmm. that that is likely to happen as well. And I mean, as far as my opinion goes, I thought, well, you know, people if people are tasked with a job, then they need to do it. And that's and that's understandable if that's the case. But everyone in the foreign community there would would say that that was likely to be a thing.
0: How hard was it for you to uh, leave North Korea in twenty nineteen?
1: It was really difficult, and I again feel guilty about saying it was difficult because really, in the grand scheme of things, I do not have a difficult life. Um, I'm very privileged to be able to leave and um, to even have any feelings about it. Yeah. I have to. It's it's a really, it's a really, really difficult thing. And um, the biggest thing that was hard for me was leaving my friends. And I think in the the current world where it's so easy to keep in touch with people, whether that be through social media, email, zoom, you know, in the pandemic, we found lots of new ways of being able to keep in contact with each other Hmm. that just can't exist with North Korea. And so when you say goodbye to someone you really care about, it's, you know, that that's a definite goodbye. And I don't think that there's really anything that compares to that. And it feels like grieving when you leave those people behind because they're still there and you don't know what their life is going to be like. You, you can't ever find out what happens to them. You just can't connect
0: but even even though they might not be able to write to you you could potentially send a postcard or a package to you know care of their workplace uh, from from england couldn't you or from scotland
1: i guess i could but i, I mean i don't know if that would ever reach them and um mm. i think people move around a lot i mean i i met some north koreans i met and i got to know a little bit would move jobs um and to something completely unrelated to what it was they were doing before And it would be Mm. very sudden, you know, you get to know somebody, come back the next day and they've gone and there's no goodbye party or anything. They're just gone. And the North Queens who worked with them would just say, Oh, well, they've got a new job. So even if you were to send something, there's nothing to say that that would necessarily get to them, which again, in these days is very unusual.
0: Do you hope to visit there again at some stage in the future?
1: I think for me, again, the, the, biggest thing i'm i miss my friends that that is that is the thing i've I've struggled to deal with most and um mm. i say struggle and again i say struggle but um it's it, relatively not really as, as compared to the struggle that north korean people have but i do very much miss my friends i would i would love to see them again but who knows if that's ever if that's ever going to be a possibility
0: now, one thing I've I've really uh, learned during the, doing this podcast for the last three years is that you've got people who make policy on North Korea uh, or or you who know, make rules that affect North Korea, uh, and people who go to and spend time in North Korea, and they're very often not the same. Right, that, that mm. people who actually uh, make decisions often um, have either not been to North Korea or have not even spoken to a North Korean. And vice versa, that the people who, you know, have spent time living in North Korea or working with North Koreans don't actually have the power to, uh, you know, or the connections to influence policy uh, on North Korea. If if you were able to um, to say something to someone who does have that that power to make policy or rules that affect North Korea, what would you want them to know from your experience? I think
1: that's a very good question. I think the the main reason I wanted to write this book was to not only be able to put someone in the experience of what it's like what it was like for me as a foreigner to be there but to try and highlight that behind the political drama there's a human story and that's the most important thing um i think particularly the moment with the borders being closed i i don't want there to be any closure of thought and consideration Mm. when it comes to the North Korean people. I think now more than ever, um, the, the country is so isolated. And I think we all have a responsibility to listen to them and, and what needs to be done to help them. Um, and if I can, in any way through this book, bring that human story forward, even in a very small way. I, I would hope then that that is considered as a success.
0: Well, that's great. And we do hope that our listeners will go and check out your book, Lindsay. It's called uh, North Korea, Like Nowhere Else, uh, published by September Publishing. You can find it online and at good bookshops. And you can find Lindsay Miller on Twitter at LindsayMiller87. That's Lindsay with an E. Thank you once again for joining us on the podcast today, Lindsay.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And our thanks as always go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast. And to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time.